This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is my co-host, Brian Rinaldi. Brian, how's it going? That's going great. And today is another Developer Digest episode, and we have some great articles that we collected from the web uh, to share with you guys, and we post those on our Telerik Developer Network, and uh, we're going to kind of give you our commentary on those, and then you're welcome to go find those on our website and read them or sign up for the newsletter. So let's uh, kick things off with our first article by uh, the always amazing Jen Looper. And um, she's got an article called Bots, Bots, Bots. And it's uh, pretty much about bots. (laughs) 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 So like Microsoft and Google and Facebook uh, at their big keynotes this year have all kind of come out with their own bot frameworks. And it seems like 2016 is like the year of the bot, right? Absolutely. In fact, I talked to somebody, um, this was like a phone gap day earlier in the year, and, and they were like, they, they were telling me before things had really taken off, they were like, bots are going to be the thing. I, I guess they were right. So um, it just really seems like it's taken off. I mean, every company is releasing their bot platform. Uh, people are writing bots left and right. Um, I think it's I think it's really cool. I, I think the reason probably is just it's easy to interact. With. I mean, it's just natural to interact with a bot if it's done well, right? Yeah. In my opinion, I think some of the relativeness of bots and why they're they're kind of making a comeback and it's not making a comeback is we've had bots in like other chat platforms for years, but <laughs> those things were always like command driven, right? You always had right. to be like uh, slash some command and then some you know parameters for that command and the bot may like you know throw an emoji out or something but now we've got you know this machine learning uh from all the big software manufacturers and it's a lot easier to parse through um natural language and figure out what people are talking about what they're discussing and uh you know less reliance on you know the specific keywords to make a bot do something you can kind of uh, glean what the conversation's about or what the question was and uh, the the big companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook are, are making APIs to help you know facilitate that stuff yeah uh, totally and and uh, I mean on that note I mean so all of this kind of blends together with not just bots that say you type to right um, but also ones you speak to, like like things like Amazon Echo or Google had their um, Google, I forgot what they call their one that they released at, at I.O. Um, or announced there anyway. And, I mean, so I actually have an article coming up about you writing for the Echo. In that case, you know, the commands are spoken, right? Uh, but it all, in the end, it's not, there's really not a lot of difference because the commands are spoken but then translated into something text that I then parse and, and respond to. And then I send back text and that text is just spoken. So it's effectively the same kind of thing as these bots. But I think, you know, you've noticed companies starting to add 
those voice assistants into just about every device that they have. Um, and people, people get, like to use them. So um, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm always kind of skeptical of the next big thing, um, like, you know, like wearables and, and uh, you know, v VR and things like that. I'm a little skeptical that those are going to really be quick to catch on. I mean, wearables is obviously a, a market, but it's somewhat small. Uh, and VR still hasn't really proven that it's necessarily useful to me. Um, so, but this one, I think, is just, it's so simple to interact with that, um, and, and the ability to either just naturally type or naturally speak makes it just a no-brainer. Yeah, my, my only concern is uh, some of the demos I've seen have shown, like, bots interacting with other bots to get things done. So it's yeah. like, you know, you're like, you know, Cortana or Google, I want a hotel room. And then the hotel picks up with its bot and it's like, oh, I have five rooms available. And the bot tries to negotiate with the other bot. And it's like, huh. we already can't like get a human being on a phone or any other means. And uh, now we're going to have bots interacting with other bots. It's like, how far removed are we going to get when there's a problem the bots can't solve? You know, but that's an interesting idea. I hadn't really thought of that because effectively a bot is an API in a way, right, that I can interact with with just text. So, I mean, you could actually have a bot call a bot as if it were an API. Right? I've been on the phone for five hours with your bot. <laughs> I need to talk to a human being, please. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, Jen, Jen wrote a great article anyway on how to create um, – your own Slack bot, and uh, she she walks you through like setting up the SDK and uh, you know setting up the environment there and and creating a test, uh, scripting and deploying. Uh, she actually yeah. used uh, uh, Modulus, which is one of our services to deploy to, yeah. and then uh, she walks you through even inviting the bot to the Slack channel and and interacting with it. So it's a great read. Yep, definitely. She doesn't actually tell you though that when that some of the bots she wrote, um, <laughs> I had to ask her to shut it down. I'm like, shut it down. <laughs> I'm like, your bot just keeps keeps pinging me nonstop all day. Because <laughs> she wrote one that was in one of our our Slack rooms, and it was like, oh my god, I kept being like, leave me alone, and it, which was like technically one of the things you could tell it to do or something. I don't remember the exact response. And it would just come back like five minutes later. It was like it was like a bot written by Apple. <laughs> Did it like, ask for money? It's like, oh, then I, then you, I believe it. you need to sign into iCloud. Uh, no, later. All right. Hey, you need to sign into iCloud. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. So uh, Cody Lindy, uh, he, Lindley wrote a... Um, an article about taming your React setup. So apparently, some some developers think it's difficult to get your React setup uh, for an environment to um, have your workflow anyway. Yep. And uh, so he outlined like seven different configurations, and he he like fully demos each way that you could set this up uh, to use. Uh, I guess the modules that that you prefer, like React uh, J with JSX or without, uh, with or without Babel, um, right. and Webpack, and System.js, and all those things are detailed out in uh, yep. really step-by-step -step tutorial uh, style, so it's easy to, to pick up and 
understand uh, how to, how to create those um, development environments that you want to you know custom tailor. Yeah, and I mean I think the 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 key here is is that React is not prescriptive in the way that in your setup, right? It's because it's only one small piece of a larger ecosystem that doesn't, you know, that it doesn't prescribe necessarily all the parts. And that's kind of what he, he gets at in the beginning is that and that's led people to believe that it's React that makes it difficult. But it's in a way, it's almost like saying, you know, um, well, stick shift is more difficult to drive than an automatic. And yeah, it is, but it also gives you more flexibility, right? In a way. Yeah, and I think the thing here is, um, like you're saying, it's not React that's difficult. I think it's the state of JavaScript that's difficult. Yes. And it's like uh, setting up any JavaScript project these days, it seems like you're just jumping through command line hoops. Yep. But the command line is so awesome that the more hoops you jump through, it's just more awesome, yeah. right? The thing is, I, I get in the mode where it's like I'm losing the context of what the heck I'm actually doing with the command line. Like, yeah. eventually, it's just me, like, just furiously pasting other people's command line scripts into <laughs> the console and hitting enter because it's just yeah. too, too much to remember, like, what each one of these. Uh, I guess domain-specific language would be the proper term. Like you have uh, each of these command line uh, executables, and then all of the options and parameters that go with each one of them, and they're all written differently, and they all use their own kind of syntax. And uh, it, it just gets to be a huge mental game. It is a mess, you know, and I would say sometimes it's really important to f figure out why it is you're doing something because you can get in this mode where you just do something because it's what you've done right um i always like to think of like the example of like behaviorists look at the way people do things and they could be doing it very inefficiently but until it stops working for them they actually will continue to do it inefficiently even when shown ways to do it more efficiently <laughs> i don't know if that makes sense right yeah. so like Sometimes it's, you know, you can, even in, in our jobs and as programmers, right, we can get into this mode where we're actually using all this stuff just because we've always used all this stuff. And, well, we have to install X and we have to install Y. And you need to sometimes, I think, step back and be like, look at why am I still, why am I using this? Is it actually benefiting me? Um, because I think we've started laying around, layering on so many pieces that you get somewhat disassociated with each individual piece and why you're using it. At least in this case, we have somebody like Cody to document this stuff for us and uh, yeah. show us how, how to do it easier anyway. Yep, definitely. Otherwise, we'd just be beating our head against the wall. And no, we're our still beating out. our head against the wall, but that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> Uh, next up, we, we've we been doing a series on um, our Telerik developer experts. Um, do you want to kind of give folks a uh, overview of what a Telerik developer expert is if they haven't heard of one? Sure. I mean, it's just a program that we run for people who are very well-versed in, in Telerik products um, and have been active within the community and um, we like to offer like recognition for their efforts and 
the things that they do on on behalf of our our developer community. So we have this program that just kind of gives them some some of that recognition and helps enable them to contribute to other um, other things that we're doing, right? And keep them up to date with all what's going on side of of well progress. Yes. Tailored by progress. Sorry. <laughs> so these are folks that are, you know, writing articles for the blog and writing right. apps and blogging on their own blog on how they got, you know, they created an app using some of our tools and uh, maybe speaking about our stuff at a meetup or conferences. And they're they're consistently, you know, delivering material uh, with right. our message and our uh, our products. And to show our appreciation, we have the program for them and. This week we covered uh, uh, Jim Holmes, and um, he's our, one of our developer experts for Test Studio. And, yep. uh, he used to work here. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he was our, our Test Studio uh, developer advocate, and um, he was yeah. also a program program manager or director of engineering for Test Studio. That's what it was. And yeah. uh, Jen gave him a nice interview, and if you'd like to learn more about Mr. Jim Holmes, uh, go check that article out. Uh, Jim will actually be on the show in a couple uh, weeks here. Um, he's got some uh, interesting uh, agile, uh, you know, workflow type of uh, office politics uh, point of view that he'd like to share, and uh, hopefully he does a better job of explaining it than I did. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> He he has an interesting name for it, so um, we're gonna record a show on that. And I think everybody will enjoy that. Sounds interesting. Yeah. So um, uh, next next article up is actually one of my own. Um, so <laughs> shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> uh, .NET Core uh, went RC2 uh, last well about two weeks ago, and. Um, there's just tons and tons of changes. So we actually recorded an entire podcast on that with uh, Jeffrey Fritz from uh, Microsoft, and he gave us kind of the insight into why some of those changes took place and what they are and what we should expect. Um, they made a lot of changes. So if you've been fortunate enough to not be keeping up with it, you're, you're probably better off <laughs> than if you've been trying to keep up with it because just everything's been in flux. Um, there's a lot of changes to the command line interface. Uh, they've renamed the the exe there, so there's no more dnx exe. It's now .net.exe. Uh, that was one of the huge changes in the latest release. Uh, the project structures have changed. Uh, so you might need to go back and look at um, what file new project gives you in this version. And then, uh, of course, we, we released some of our tag helpers for, and when I say we, uh, Telerik uh, products by Progress have, have released some support for ASP.NET Core uh, tag helpers, which is a new way of writing um, server-side HTML code. Uh, so it, it's got some uh, nice features that make it more readable and um, easier easier for you to parse uh, visually when you're when you're trying to create your uh, client side or sorry uh, server side templates and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and then, and you know importantly, .NET Core goes AC, RC2 sounds. To me, it's like something like you know from Star Wars movie or something. <laughs> or somebody says, "Oh my God, Luke, 
The .NET Core has gone RC2. It's gone to plaid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Better, right? Better get off oh, space balls. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that needs to be an that needs to be an article on its own right there. Yeah. Just a, a Mel Brooks next... style <laughs> take yeah, on the, the .NET ecosystem. Theme. Yeah, that's right. Dark helmet. So uh, up next we have um, ready to use Grid UI for Angular JS applications. So um, this was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of our engineers that wrote this yeah. piece. Yeah, uh, Konstantin. Uh, You're going to butcher the name. Go Dikov? ahead. Dikov. Konstantin. Yes, one of those. I, I bet I, I nailed it. So, <laughs> one of the ways you said it was probably right, Dikov. So we um, we have a lot of UI controls, uh, and one of the biggest, most popular ones of those is the grid, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we have an Angular version of, or Angular support for this grid control, and um, this is for Angular 1, and we'll have Angular 2 support soon, uh, but there's still a ton of people writing Angular 1 apps. I mean, lots yeah. and lots of folks writing Angular 1 apps. Yeah, and uh, Angular 2 is still, you know, it's still not complete, right? It's yeah, it's, not a, I think it's, it's I, uh, maybe it release candidate, maybe beta. I, yeah, I think I it's still beta close to release. Yeah, but, so, I mean, you know, I think even people starting new apps are a lot of them are still using angular one yeah it's and, it's and definitely not production ready let's just say that so um what he did is wrote uh about some of the biggest like frequently asked questions and he answered you know the hows and whys about uh many things regarding uh how to get angular and the grid working together and how to do like crud operations and uh, everything that you're going to need uh, to get, you know, some of the most difficult tasks done with uh, and relatively easy with with the grid control. And, yeah, it's um, a really nice article. Yeah, and it, it kind of made me think back to um, the previous article with Jim Holmes, mm -hmm. uh, because in, in his interview um, he mentions that he is one of his jobs right now is to. Uh, create unit tests for a custom grid product that they wrote in-house and he's saying it's you know extraordinarily difficult to get this thing tested and uh, he wishes they would have just used a kendo grid from day one and they wouldn't have to worry about you know unit testing all of yeah. the problems that they've had you know or all of the cases they need to cover with this grid uh, because we frankly do that all for you you don't have to worry about it so. Yeah, even when I was a developer, I was like on a full-time basis, obviously, right? I was all for, I don't like having to reinvent the wheel. If somebody's got a solution that's out there like this, you know, especially for something as complicated as a grid, there's no way that I want to get into the grid writing business, you know? Yeah, you know, this will probably come off as like a sales pitch, but it's not. Um, but if you just sit down for a second and think about how long or how many hours you're going to spend writing you know x feature for a grid and just you know look at how much you're going to spend on on getting a good 
you know, solid grid with lots of features. I mean, sure, you can spit out a table element and fill that in. That's not a problem. You know, use Bootstrap to theme it. But as soon as you got to, like, filter that grid or sort columns in it or start doing some of that type of stuff or, or doing CRUD within the grid and supporting uh, accessibility and make sure it's keyboard navigation works, <laughs> that's a rabbit hole you don't want to get down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When I look at the number of features in that grid, it's like, I, you know, you, you may not use them all, but even if if you use some of them, you're just not going to want to maintain that kind of thing all the time. Yeah, I mean, I I always had a subscription for Telerik when I before I even worked there, uh, but what I would do is uh, the rule of thumb was okay if it's just data and I just want to you know throw it out on the page a table's fine for that right we don't we don't need to take a dependency on a third party library. But as right. soon as somebody is like, "Can I sort this grid?" I was like, "Okay, time to <laughs> time to get yep. the the Telerik libraries installed and take a dependency and call it a day." And then it's like flip a switch and they've got all the features they want added on. So yep. anyway, shameless totally plug great. number two of the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Back kind of to the .NET world, um, we we kind of featured an article uh, in the newsletter um, about the changes that were being made to project.json. So this is another uh, .NET Core RC2, RC2 thing. Yeah. Uh, thing. yeah. And I, I think in the newsletter we actually got the wrong author. So that, that was actually written by Scott Hunter uh, from Microsoft and then posted by another person. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. my fault. Yeah, <laughs> all your fault. Three yeah, I, I always wonder. Like, I mean, come on, you can put the real author there, can't you? <laughs> Rather than put it, this post was written by. Uh, make me have to do lots of work. So, um, anyway, Scott Hunter wrote uh, about some upcoming changes. So, actually, in RC two, this did not change. Uh, what he's writing about is um, actually what will happen in the betas that will take place after uh, .NET Core 1.0 releases. So mm. for right now, RC2 will become 1.0, and okay. project.json will not change whatsoever. But once um, our, the 1.0 comes out and they start working on the next milestone... Uh, <laughs> that will start changing project.json. Um, and the reasoning behind this is uh, there's actually a few things. So one of them is, you know, naturally with anything new, you're going to have legacy stuff that doesn't mm -hmm. work. <laughs> and for Microsoft, when they have legacy people, uh, or not legacy people, maybe that's a that sounds yeah. really bad. Yeah, sound great. <laughs> they have people with legacy needs, uh, you know, applications <laughs> that are that are of age. Uh, yeah. We'll try to be politically correct with the, the terminology here. Uh, we have old applications that um, need to be supported. Uh, Microsoft has a lot of those. Yeah, um, I can imagine. So when they tried to change the project structure, naturally those people were kind of like throwing up red flags everywhere like hey help you know we're we're trying to create you know applications that can live uh 15 20 years and um 
this is breaking right. stuff. So, yeah, that, and that was my understanding, right? Is that this was in large part due to feedback, right? Mm-hmm. That they got. Absolutely. So they they listen to customers. Customers are saying, you know, we we like MS Build. We have it in lots of legacy applications that we'd like to move forward and not break completely and have to rewrite from the ground up. Um, and there's a lot of things that uh, they would have to recreate um, tooling-wise to support project.json the way it was going. And it was going to be a big, um, it was going to create a big lag uh, that they could just fix by going, okay, we'll just use MS Build moving forward. So what they're going to do is um, they're going to go back to the old project style, but keep many of the things that people liked about project.json. So we're, we're going to end up with the best of both worlds when they're done, which is nice. Hopefully. Um, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I think they're, they're well-intentioned, and, and they're going to try to make this work the best they can. And um, Xamarin, them purchasing, purchasing Xamarin was another thing that helped this move forward. Uh, because Xamarin actually has a version of MS Build that works on Mac and Linux, so right. they're they're already halfway there with that purchase of Xamarin. So uh, that's gotten them a leg up on the situation. So they decided, okay, we're gonna go back to the old project style and use MS Build if that's what people want to use, and um, they're gonna provide command line interface stuff for Mac and Linux to. Um, get MS Build working on those systems. So I hope that if you're uh, if you're .NET dev, you um, you caught something from that. If you're not, you may have tuned out by now. But hopefully not. We've got we've got some uh, we've got some good stuff coming up. Um, so the you know Nick Raboy um, is one of our TDEs, and he's yeah. pretty much been mentioned on every developer uh, digest show so far because he's always yeah. posting something about uh, our tooling or some tutorial and well mostly new script but yeah he's he's pretty prolific right? yeah I mean he, he writes a lot like I wish yeah. I had the the drive to write as much as he does so we're gonna ha- we're actually gonna have him on the show as well this month sometime oh great uh, we've lined that up we're gonna record that sometime next week and get it up on on the podcast soon so everybody can uh, Kind of hear what a you know what he's doing and uh, what kind of stuff he works on for uh, Couchbase. Um, but he wrote a tutorial on uh, going from Ionic two to NativeScript. Right, and I mean the big thing here is that Ionic two is also using Angular two to NativeScript, right? Which is now has Angular two integration. So the idea being, you're not taking, say, an older Ionic application that was that was built on Angular one and trying to convert it. Because um, anyway, he, his uh, premise was that it really wouldn't be that difficult, given that they're both running Angular two. Yeah, and one of the big you know things to take from this article is the fact that Ionic is using web views to you know it's using angular and it's using you know it's it's creating a mobile application but it's using a web view to do that right and the native script is actually using a native um native components yeah. yeah native apis like and it. we're talking directly to the hardware with native script so 
that's it's a big difference there. So you, if you could take your Ionic app and use pretty much the same framework to build it and um, use NativeScript instead of Ionic, then you can benefit from not having a web view. Right. Uh, you know, and the thing the thing here is that 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 is what he said. Most of the changes were just because you're not writing in a web view, you're not you don't have a HTML, JavaScript, CSS front end, right? You have it's a an XML type markup for the front end that specifies all the native components, right? So mm -hmm. so you can't actually you know you can reuse a lot of the code behind that UI. But you can't reuse the UI if you're moving from Ionic to NativeScript. Yeah, one of the things about um, uh, Angular 2, though, is um, it does allow like this templating system to be, you know, changed from HTML to something else. So there's there's probably right. some reuse there where you're just changing out the template, you know, from an HTML template to an XML template. Right. That's yeah. Really so cool. he said. He said basically everything behind the UI specifically, right? You mm -hmm. can stay very similar, but um, but you know you can't. You have to take everything you did in HTML and just replace that template with an XML. You know, with the NativeScript markup. Nice, very nice, um, and that gives us a good a good entry to the next article up, which is covering mobile development ecosystems uh, by. Mr. Brian Rinaldi. Yeah, I know that guy. I wouldn't trust him. Yeah, I heard he gets like authors' names wrong when he puts them in the newsletter and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's terrible. Um, yeah, so the, this was uh, I did a whole. It was actually one gigantic article that they split into parts because it was just a bit long as a read, but it was basically four parts. The first three parts go through the different um, pieces, uh, like the different options for how you could build your app from going all the way from, say, mobile, just plain mobile web across the spectrum to like, you know, hybrid and like this hybrid native, I call it, which is like a, some, a kind of mixture where you put, you have a hybrid app, but where things don't perform, you'll swap in native components to something like uh, NativeScript, right, which or React Native, where you have the UI is native, but behind the scenes it's JavaScript, then to something like um, a cross-compiled, like a Xamarin, right, where you, you write in a different language, but it's then compiled into native code. So it's not running behind the scenes in a different language. It's actually all running native language, but it's been cross-compiled. So it's getting a little much closer to straight native, and then the next option over on that spectrum is just plain native, right? Um, and I just kind of discuss from across that spectrum, give an overview of what all those different options are. And then this one that I like to kind of trying to give some advice on how you choose. I mean, in the end, I think it really boils down to what are my, what are the resources on my team? Like what are the skill sets on my team? You know, and do I have the, like, if I choose to do one of these other options because we think that would be a better fit, do I actually have the ability to, say, hire or farm out or whatever to get that done, right? Because in the end, I mean, we all talk about, say, like, picking the best tool for the job, but in the end, it, it really does boil down to people, right? And 
and you're not going to go say, you know what, we think this is, you know, we'd rather do this in Xamarin, so we're going to go basically hire a bunch of C-sharp guys to go, you know, and then start trying to build this from scratch with all new guys to join the company. And You know what I mean? Like, you have to have, go in large part with what your team is capable of doing, um, unless you, say, are going to just farm it out externally. Yeah, and the stance that I always take on this, too, is it's not always uh, one or the other option. Like, it's not always, should we have a mobile website or a native application? Sometimes it's like, okay, we need an a, a application on that runs on the uh, natively, but we also need a website that can be you know viewed on a mobile device. And both of those things need to be like companions to one another and you know drive downloads to them to the application and stuff like that. Yep. Uh, so finally we we have a uh, one one more native script article. Um, it is called Native Script Android Application Package Size Revealed. And this is right. by Georgie at, uh, <laughs> at Yes. Yes, him. We'll go with that. Yeah, this is we're, he's he's on the the engineering team for Native Script. But, we're gonna but, start being known as the show that just butchers people's names. So. Well, this is what <laughs> happens when you're you know when a lot of your company is in Bulgaria. No excuse. <laughs> <laughs> you it's need very, to learn very Bulgarian. insensitive, Brian. How dare you? Um, but yeah, so so this article is really it's really interesting because it. Um, it delves into exactly what what's going into the package that we deploy for Android, right? And why it's significantly larger, say, than than like you would get on iOS, right? Um, and what what's causing that? What ways around that? If you uh, if it becomes an issue for your application, um, and what we're doing kind of down the road to alleviate some of that weight. I think, you know, and the larger point here, I think, is one of the things I love about what we're doing with NativeScript is we're basically um, doing everything out in the open, right? I mean, we're, we're not just making it open source. We are, like, being as open as we possibly can. Um, in this case, admitting where we know there's something we need to improve and being open about what the issues are and how we're trying to improve it. Yeah, transparency, like to the nth degree here and yep. it's really good stuff too because it's like the article we covered last episode where uh we're diving down like into this deep like engineering decision making process that we have and if you're not using native script but you're just like geeking out on software engineering as a whole this is still an excellent read for you yep i agree I, I like the way he he discusses it and kind of, you know, explains where where these decisions were made, right? Not yeah. just yeah. and he does it in terms that people can understand if they're not that you know, uh, tech savvy software engineer, but they're interested in kind of some of the engineering that goes on in it, which is also yep. nice. So if you want to catch that article, uh, make sure you stop by developer.telerik.com and uh, click on the Telerik Developer Digest uh, call to action on the right-hand side of the page. 
uh, make sure you sign up so you, you get those in your email and you don't have to count them down every month or, or sorry twice a month when they come out um, and then tune into the podcast and listen to us share our opinions on what we read for the for the, those weeks yep that sounds good and uh, for the show we have quite a few guests coming up um, I know we kind of missed a show in the middle of last week. Uh, yeah, what's so the deal, man? Two developer digest shows back to back. We we actually had uh, kind of a difficult month um, scheduling, folks. It was busy for everybody. You know, school's getting out, and uh, there's a lot going on. People are traveling. Conferences are are uh, spinning up and dying down again. So we've got a big queue coming up with uh, great people like Jared Ferris and Julie Learman and um, Jim Holmes and Nick Raboy will all be coming up on the show very shortly. And so hopefully you guys subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Make sure you guys leave us uh, some feedback if you'd like. Uh, there's uh, feedback on the website or on SoundCloud. And make sure you give us a like on iTunes. Uh, that helps us get more listeners and keep the show going. Yeah, good stuff. Brian, thanks a lot for helping me out again, buddy. Yeah, no problem. This was fun, as always. And we'll be back next week with uh, Jared Ferris on the podcast. Look forward so, to it. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. All right.